All right. And there you have it, folks. You may hear it sounding a little different than recent episodes going on this summer, even this spring, this year in general. Uh, Thanks to you folks holding it down. It's in the Wine Cellar Media Fund. Well, now it's out of it. I have the receipt. Uh, Went ahead and replaced the Elder microphone. It is out of there, folks. So now we're going to go ahead and let uh, Talk Fury borrow a Wine Cellar opener and get this thing up and or running. This episode is going to be very constructive. Now, sisters and brothers, we know we got over by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of sheroes and heroes, some whose names we know and some whose names we do not know. But I'm going to tell you something. We have been here before. Now, the only difference is we got some company, Rev. We got our gay lesbian sisters and brothers with us this time. We got our Hispanic. Asian Native American sisters and brothers with us this time. I think Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King said we may not have gotten here on the same ship, but we are in the same boat right now. In Father Teresa's wine cellar, we believe all oppression is intersectional. And this means our analysis of current events frequently includes discussion of difficult and explicit content. Any combination of the following topics could be included in our show. Murder, rape, war, climate change, racism, sexism, violence, sexual violence, homophobic violence, heterocentrism, discrimination and abuse against individuals of nonconformist sexuality, domestic violence, child abuse, child rape, child neglect, elderly abuse, verbal abuse, police brutality, microaggressions, ableism, cyberbullying, genital mutilation, ideological extremism, and people just being total fucking assholes. All right, WineCellarMedia.com. It is Sunday yet again. It is 3 p.m. Central Standard Father Mucking Time yet again. And it is Talk Fury live to tape yet again. And um, at the request of old school Patreon subscribers that have been around uh, since we started the Patreon, I think towards the end of 2015. Uh, They said, hey, make it public. Don't make a tiered system. Do not make a tiered system. (laughs) All right. So um, and on top of that, I figured I'd take it even further and uh, make Talk Fury go straight to archive right after recording instead of uh, pushing it to late Tuesday and early Wednesday. So uh, Talk Fury straight to the socialized feed and some things that I saw on Talk Fury that you may also find interesting. We have in the web post on winecellarmedia.com right there. And uh, you might dig some of it. Excuse me. Uh, Teenvogue.com added again. And side note, I think the writing staff on the uh, Babysitter's Club is reading a bit of Teen Vogue from what I saw on Netflix. 
But uh, Teen Vogue is pointing out that uh, protesters who wear tear gas, who were tear gassed, say they got their period multiple times in a month. And tear gas has unknown effects on the reproductive system. Uh, Also, uh, what up, Phoenix Leader? Abortifacient? Yes. No shit. I thought that was a fake word. That's a real. That's a real word. I thought that was some bullshit them Hobby Lobby niggas made up. Increased rates of uh, abortions. Okay. And Phoenix Collider's audio's good there now. Okay, so it said tear gas is an abortifacient, is what Phoenix Collider says in her h- hobbyist of lobby ways. Um, it's on dictionary.com and Encyclopedia Britannica Medicine. Say word. That that's how not serious I take right wingers. I don't even look up what they say anymore. I'm just like, oh fuck off, you're full of shit. Like at least if you're a Democrat, I'll go and fact check your ass. I don't even fact check Republicans. I just write off everything they say is shit. I mean, uh, that's kinda legit though. Man, taking a look. This is also folks, you can check this out on the uh Fury, uh feminist uprising to resist inequality and exploitation page on the face booze. And um they also have this um, uh, devastating fucking story that the uh, the wine cellar. I, I'm, we're we're going to keep on covering this. I picked this up from following Fury myself. Um, so a soldier who bludgeoned um, Vanessa Gullen to death, and a civilian who helped him uh, cut her body up are identified. You know, and uh, more news that's coming off of that is a. Um, another uh, officer that apparently held multiple ranks so when you look at different articles some are gonna say lieutenant some are gonna say officer but apparently this was just a sociopathic careerist considering the way she spoke and she spoke of the sexual harassment as if it's just normal hazing that um cis women should just go through because that's just how it is yeah which well, boys, think, will be boys, boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. I think that's also just the general um, attitude in those sort of circles, right? Because you remember the one that they, I think it was um, like Navy SEALs or Army Rangers or some, you know, they uh, killed one of their guys, but they were planning to rape him before because it was a joke. They literally said they were going to rape somebody as a joke. Yeah, well, that was one that was in a, a high school, uh, a high school team. That all, the, yes, that happened yeah, there too. Can't, can't remember if it was football or basketball. It was football, but yeah, it was a um, uh, mentally, you know, the nigga got the mental joints going on and all yes. that shit. That's how you don't be able. It's just fucking keep it real. It's fuck, yeah, yeah, nigga had that. You know, shit wasn't really popping, and uh, and they raped the little nigga. Mm-hmm. Shit's fucking ridiculous. And we have Doctor Springler here, of course, with the um. What do they call that? A slouchy, some some sort, some sort of fresh knitted hat. It's a slouchy beanie. Yeah, that's that's what the hip hop kids wear. How you doing there, Doctor Springler? I am doing good. I'm doing good. Glad to be back on the show. Um, yeah, you know, two things with the um, before I forget about the Teen Vogue stuff. You know, so apparently back in 2017, they changed um, editors in chief. And that has a big, that apparently that, that's the big thing that changed how Teen Vogue went about their entire focus. Um, I believe it's the black woman who now runs Teen Vogue, the editor-in-chief, Lindsay, let's see, Lindsay Wagner, I believe is her name. I was just looking it up to see if I can remember here. But um, 
anyway, um, she's only about 30 years old, and she just said she wanted to change it, make Teen Vogue about change. I don't know how she, you know, just knowing how major media outlets run like that, I'm really surprised and impressed and almost suspicious just because I'm like, wow, this is like too good to be true from major from a mainstream media brand that would typically put somebody in place that would not let really, really real stories go out, you know, but she seems to be, she is the one who just completely flipped the entire, um, you know, magazine. And it's why we see Teen Vogue talking about, you know, protests and social justice, you know, all the time now. So cool and interesting. Um, and yeah, Vanessa, Guillaume, I'm not sure if I'm saying her, her last name right, the soldier who was um, murdered. Um, yeah, you know, that I think those when you have high-ranking women officers, you know, the first thing I think of is the amount of self-hatred and hazing a woman has to go through in order to rise in the ranks of that and just how much of her soul has been lost in order to be there. So it doesn't surprise me at all to hear a woman makes such derogatory comments about other women, someone who is literally murdered um, by a misogynist. So um, it's, it's pretty awful, you know. It's why you'll, you'll never hear me advocating for even things like, you know, um, ending, you know, all of the, the movements such as to end Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or even the movements against Donald Trump for ending, for trying to end, you know, um, trans rights in the military. My whole thing is like, I, I, I don't think the military should exist. That's not going to be my fight. Sorry, you know, because it produces people like this. It, it, it turns oppressed people into even more rabid oppressors in order to survive in an environment that is so anti-life, so anti-humanity at its core, the most sociopathic probably army and training system on earth, you know, that, I mean, that's not where I'm going to fight for rights in, but you know, I will support all day a woman who was murdered through that system. So I, I really want to hear what comes out of the case soon. Her parents seem really on it. Um, I think it's really important to look at where kind of politically where the family is at with the case. Um, they said last I heard from her mother, um, she said that she wants the entire army base and everything to be shut down until she gets like, justice for her daughter. So, I mean, you know, not every family makes really hardcore demands, and that's their right. But it kind of shows, you know, where the people who are really at the crux of the case, where they're going to be at and considering them and understanding what do they really want. Do they want to be in the public sphere? Do they not want to be in the public sphere? Do they really want to build a radical movement or not, you know, and so I think that um, there's a lot to um, a lot to pay attention to and see what unfolds. I don't even think they've actually identified the body yet. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. I think um, they're still getting body parts. She yeah. was dismembered. Yeah, so they're, they're still identifying body parts. And I guess as far as, like, justice for this and uh, precedent for this, uh, Lavina Johnson, still no justice. I think that was a 2005 mm. murder. Can you fill me in on that? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that one. All right, now, folks, uh, we already played the trigger warning at the top, but let's go ahead and double up on that. Um, if you don't want to hear this, I would suggest 
Typically, your podcast application may have a 15 or 30 second forward button. Maybe hit that two or three times. All right, real quick here. Uh, Lavina Johnson out in um, Balad, Iraq, Iraq, uh, raped by fellow soldier, as it tends to go. But then this motherfucker put L-Y-E, right? Lie? Yeah. L-Y-E lie, which fucks you up, dissolves yes. your shit. Yeah. Put that just on... What up? Uh, just as for reference, if folks don't know, lie is usually what's in, um, like, drains, like, drain cleaners, like, uh, like liquid plumber and shit. Because you know how it, like, dissolves the clogs and grease and shit in your drains? Like, that. that's what lie does. Yeah. And why we yeah. handle with care. Because Phoenix Kaliter makes her own soap. Lie is handled with... I've never seen Phoenix more careful than <laughs> yeah. when fucking would lie. <laughs> yeah. All it's, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, again, okay, and if you're one of the people that didn't want to hear this, uh, hit that skip forward button again. Um, he put lie on, for, colloquially, folks, on her vagina, but we understand he put it on her labia to fucking dissolve that, I guess to destroy dissolve his evidence. Yeah. yeah. and and murdered her. And, uh, and of course, th- this was a, uh, not, not, not at my complexion level, but a dark-skinned black woman murdered. And uh, so, of course, I don't yeah. expect justice. Maybe because this woman looks a little more ambiguous, brown. Maybe that might help. Most likely it won't. Um, and I, I don't think there's going to be justice, but I will still follow the story because that's the job I chose to do. And uh, and Dr. Springler, uh, side note, uh, the microphone, are you hearing me well on your end? Yeah, it's all good. Yep, that is uh, that is ninety nine dollars worth of uh, <laughs> new microphone. <laughs> it's a little better, thank you. Um, uh, Jesus Christ, I I just forgot. I'm blanking on her name. Who? Uh, the one that that sent the Juneteenth. Oh, uh, Jessica Drake. Jessica Drake, thank you. This microphone's on you, Jessica Drake. All right, I'm gonna get one of your films, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm, I want to see the credit crawl. I want to know who the key grip was. <laughs> Who got the coffee? I want to know everyone involved. Who buys porn to look at the credits? So podcasters. Ugh. Leftist podcasters. My it's a God. new trend. It's the new hipster. <laughs> All right. This, um, this, uh, we, I think we kind of took a turn from what we had because I was interacting with Dr. Springler in the uh, private message thing on the Facebooks, and Dr. Springler just basically wrote me a book of ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, I was sitting there like, I was like, hold on, I'm just going to look like every three messages and get ready. Cause some, and Phoenix was next to me like, shit, this is really interesting stuff. Like, Phoenix, what, do you, what, what, do you, what did you want to jump off with? Oh, well, I remember we were, uh, there was a conversation about, like, we should talk about prepper stuff and um, guerrilla gardening and whatnot. I remember that very specifically. Yes, guerrilla gardening. Mm-hmm. Dr. Springler, do, um, do you have any, any jump off point with that, how you want to enter that topic? Yeah, um, you know, I think preppers get a get a really bad rap um, to some extent for good reasons, um, but uh, the, and the reasons why they get a bad rap that might be justifiable is because they're very individualistic in their approach to you know the the coming apocalypse or the collapse of society or whatever it is that they envision. Um, a lot of socialists and people who have been forced on the outside of this political system, increasingly more and more people as the economy collapses and this empire becomes more and more unsustainable um, and unemployment rises and social institutions are just falling apart, you know, 
violence increases, all of these signs of, you know, a dying empire we get into. Um, and being a prepper makes more and more sense. Um, and, you know, just kind of using that term, so people kind of get what it means. Um, but, you know, the difference when you're talking to socialists is we imagine doing it together, like mm-hmm. going off the grid or something like that. You know, it's not so much about going off the grid, but if, it's, if there's kind of a, a DIY, like we can't depend on the government to um, support us. We cannot depend on typical economic relations or shipping of resources and things to be able to support our communities anymore or even our currency to support each other anymore adequately then what do we how can we do that ourselves and that's when people turn more from a prepper into a socialist because it's not just about protecting our family with our guns it's about us being able to support each other in new ways um and building so building a system ourselves and i think you know that that kind of difference is um with things like mutual aid and these other terms thrown around with helping each other in a socialist um horizontalist way and you know, horizontalist meaning not not using a hierarchy to approach these things of like charity top down from richer people, but being like, how can we equally, um, you know, help each other with resources in our community? Um, when it comes to those things, it's kind of a that's like the opposite approach of just agitating and protesting for rights, because that's kind of appealing to a system to kind of change, reform, um, maybe even overthrow the system, but it's not necessarily talking about our own system and how we are going to interact and start building our own system, which I think is, is the the area of being a prepper um, starts to get into um, or socializing the idea of a prepper to, to make a network of people who are um, self-sufficient and then making our own economy based on that. Um, that's, that's a bit of what William and I have been discussing this week. Yeah. And, you know, I find I'm in a lot of prepper groups. I've been in them for a long time. There's hella racism. It's wild Um, because a lot of preppers I find are very conservative. But I think that ties into the idea that um, a lot of preppers are incredibly uh, into the whole like hyper individualism thing. And so a lot of them have these like weird fantasies of, um, you know, some like post-apocalyptic like Mad Max shit. And they're just going to be like defending their homestead alone and protecting their wife and children and, you know, making sure nobody comes and ravages their daughter, you know, that type of shit. But that seems to be um, a pretty consistent type of fantasy with a lot of these folks because they do have that hyper individualism and they'll straight up say things like, um, you know, I have I only have six months worth of food. I can't let other people in my house or, um, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with like gray man theory, but that's really... um, and they're scared of leftists in that aspect because they're like, well, if the socialists know that I have food, they're going to come rob me and kill me. And it's like, probably not. I mean, if someone kills you, it's probably uh, not because you're a prepper. It's because you're like a really bad person, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But um, they really do have a lot of that attitude. And it's just super interesting um, how different prepping looks when it is a community-based initiative or, you know, like me and my friends are getting together to develop these skills versus um, a conservative, uh, a conservative-minded form of prepping, which is like, it's me and my immediate family. And, you know, 
not even I won't even let you know like my my socialist cousin in type thing. Um, it's just very different how prepping looks when you have support systems versus when you are doing the hyper individualistic thing. And I think ultimately that's why a lot of them fail with their prepping. They're not actually good at it because they are so hyper individualistic. They don't um, want to consider like outside opinions. They don't want outside help. But that oftentimes ends up being a detriment because uh, you could potentially end up in situations that you didn't prepare for because you didn't um, have the capacity to think about them. You know, if that like if that makes sense. Um, So I guess like and it's inherently. uh, Go ahead. It's pretty flawed. Go ahead. (laughs) No, it really is, though. But I think that that's. a big part, of, and I guess it's sort of like the, you know, what you have like, uh, like what, like uh, the corporate tech bros, right? They're like, we don't need a diverse staff; we have diversity of thought, you know, like that type of shit. That's mm-hmm. where um, a similar attitude I see a lot of preppers having is they're like, well, I don't need to listen to other people; I don't need to consider uh, more leftist approaches. We have diversity of thought on our side, and it's like, no, the fuck you don't. <laughs> Wait, diversity of thought? Yeah, you are the goddamn whitest person I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a new thing that businesses are saying is that they don't need uh, diverse uh, staff because, as, like, you because theoretically you can hire, you know, ten white men, but because they're from ten different states, they're all going to have drastically different opinions, which is possible. But you still would have more diversity of thought if you had, you know, perhaps like someone who was raised in poverty, someone who wasn't white, someone who wasn't hetero, somebody who wasn't cis, you know, because. Just because of their lived experiences, they'll have different ideas than, you know, 10 cis hetero straight white dudes from, you know, 10 different states just because of the way our society is set up. So you can't really have diversity of thought when you only have one demographic represented. But I feel like a lot of um, conservative prepper attitude is that way. We're like, well, we've thought of everything. And it's like, but have you? (laughs) Because you haven't been in, uh, in a lot of these type of lived experiences before where, you know, black people have or poor people have and you know, disabled people have, like, I mean, even, like, the goofiest shit, like, I remember, um, like, with this, uh, recent, um, uh, coronavirus, they were, like, everyone was, like, excited in a way, because they're, like, we get to practice our prepping, and I'm not leaving the house for three months, and this and that, and then, all of a sudden, a bunch of these men who are, like, because it's usually men in these groups, who are, like, I'm protecting my family, blah, 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 and all of a sudden, they're getting mad and complaining, because they have six months worth of food, but didn't occur to them that they need to buy tampons for their 17-year-old daughter. So now, like, they have to go out in the middle of the pandemic to go buy fucking tampons. And it's like, if perhaps you would have included someone with a uterus in your prepping plans, you might have had that covered. <laughs> you know? But diversity of thought. We don't need outside help. <laughs> you know, and when they talk about, you know, when they make preparations for something like six months of food where they could be completely self-isolated and self-sufficient, or even two years, you know, good preppers don't have several years worth of stuff. And, you know, but then, you know, the whole point is, okay, when that six months is done and you survived whatever it is, then what are you going to do? If you were such an asshole to your neighbors and held guns up to them when they asked for help, and now you're trying to, like, have a farm or something and all you've got are pumpkins, but your neighbor has some lettuce and you can't trade because... You're such an individualistic person. You can't rebuild even a local society. Yep. Like, we are evolved. To, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, academics who will study this, even on a biology level, about, like, you know, animals evolve not based on competition, but cooperation. 
herd animals survive because they protect each other in some way from prey. More of them will survive that way. Like it's not, you know, so you survive six months, but you can't, you can't trust anybody to trade and make your life better and more diversified. Mm-hmm. More diversified. Like, you know, our, I feel that socialism is actually a very natural. You know, we think of it as a political system that we choose and can go either way, but I think it's much more in tune with nature, even. So, you know, I think the the way that socialists prefer to do it would be much more natural for even surviving a real disaster. The individualists won't even win. They can't. You know, they'll destroy themselves in the end. Um, You know, the only reason the individualists win now is because they have the help of the state and that's married to corporate property by force. It's not like by merit. <laughs> it's, it's all their survival capitalism and individualism is purely by like militaristic force. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, no, I definitely agree with that, and it's. Uh, somewhat amusing to me, you know, when you really dig into a lot of these ideologies around this individualism and why it doesn't work. And again, it's just literally things they've never even considered before. And like, that's something I see too, uh, when it comes to like, uh, like food prep, right? So they'll be like, oh, well, you know, I bought a half of a cow this year, right? Because that's a thing you can do, right? Somebody who's raising livestock, you can put in you know, a certain percentage of what it's uh, projected to cost to raise the animal from birth until slaughter. And then you get, you know, however much you paid. And it's like, but you don't raise your own livestock. And the person you're ordering from is five states away. So if shit were to really go wrong and your neighbors hate you and you don't know how to raise your own uh, livestock, what are you going to do? You know, but they're just, yeah. they really don't have that foresight and they're really just not capable of thinking ahead like that. And it's really, I mean, I said it earlier, but it's still wild to me how often these groups, they actually really condemn um, a lot of left wing thinking because it is a group effort. And they're like, well, if I, you know, if I tell them that I have this, they're going to try to hurt me. They're going to steal it from me. And it's like, no, you would steal it from somebody else. And you assume everybody is just as fucking grimy as you are. <laughs> like, that's not, yeah. you know, how it works. It's and, so fear based. Like, oh, everything yeah. they did, every move they make, like, And that's the point of individualism and even, you know, capitalism, if we wanted to get really philosophical, I feel like. It's so much based on fear and hoarding the material world because you have, because these people have so much fear about what is beyond that, what is transcendental beyond that, and what we actually care about, like common good or, you know, and that's kind of the basis of socialism, I say, is like, I found that we believe that there is a common good Mm -hmm. that people deserve. Even if you can't see it yet, we, we believe that we are going to move towards that because we, we have love for that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, have, we have a belief that that is something that should be available to all people rather than just those who compete and are able to win what they get. Um, but I think it's very fear-based. Um, it's inherently just very, um, it, it kind of shoots people in the foot. So, um, you know, I, I did joke a few months ago with people um, about the food shortages that were starting, which still might happen. It's just, you know, the economy, a lot of the food we eat now is harvested from a year ago. So right. to some extent, we haven't seen the, 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 the ripple effect of everything. The economic crisis is still, it's going to be like a domino effect of things over time, I think, mm-hmm. um, over the next year or two um, in the coming few years of the decade. So um, we, we still haven't experienced it. And people kind of let their guard down. They're like, okay. 
toilet paper was back in stock this week. We're going to be okay. And it's like, that, that's not exactly how the economy mm-hmm. <laughs> completely works here. But we, but there could be shortages. And we saw, you know, back in, I believe it was May, it was a big month when a lot of farmers were, they shot like millions of animals because they couldn't send them to the factories because the factories had less staff because a lot of them were being shut down because people tested positive for the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So the whole chain of production was shutting down. And if one of those major points in capitalist production shuts down for whatever reason, you know, this time it was a comrade coronavirus. Uh, don't don't quote me on that, to serious people. But um, <laughs> uh, not that we're not serious, but sometimes I, I say things. I'm like, did I say that? I said that. Okay. Um, Oh, All right. welcome um, to the wine but cellar. But once shut down in that chain, and the next year, so, you know, millions of pigs are shot. And, you know, the whole point in a, in a capitalist society is, you know, I told people, and the same with people, were throw, they were throwing out, you know, plants that couldn't be harvested because workers couldn't work on the farms together because of the virus in the spring. And it was like, you know, what if a bunch of socialists showed up in some truck? And said, hey, they could ask peacefully and say, hey, give us all your extra pigs and your extra, we're all unemployed, we could do this. Give us your pigs, give us your produce that you're going to throw out. Mm-hmm. You know, they do it nicely, mm-hmm. they could just hand it over. If they don't do it nicely, a million people going hungry have the right to go up and say by gunpoint and say, hey, give us those pigs they're about to kill because we'll go handle it. Yep. You know, we, we're going to go do this and we're going to do it together and we're going to do it differently because it's the whole economic system is based on what profits instead of what are the actual needs compared to the humans that are going to be consuming these things. Yeah. And so we just, we saw that fall flat on face this spring. And that could be part of the future. I mean, part of it is going to be us building our own farms. Part of it might be reclaiming areas that corporate farming, agriculture, and food production has really bastardized. And taking some of it over, you know, um, where we have to, just like you would take over a factory in an, in an industrial revolution and make it a workers co-op. Oh, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, as you pointed out, um, that there was just all this food that wasn't being put out because of COVID. That was something else I saw in uh, some of these prepper groups as well is um, it was folks who were basically hoarding food, but perishable food. And it's like, Why? Like, like, there has to be, like, yeah. a level of sadism to that. Because, uh, you know, I think there was one person in particular who um, lived near a farm, and because of COVID, they couldn't ship stuff out. So the, it was, a, like, a like a smaller family farm. They were just giving shit away. And this person's like, I got all these potatoes, and I don't know how to use them all. And people were like, well, how many potatoes do you have? And they were like, oh, I have, like, 125 pounds of potatoes. And it's like, why? You don't need that. But instead of, you know, the farm was kind enough to give away this produce. And instead of fucking sharing the wealth, you fucking hoarded so much that you can't even use it. Like, yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. I think that's just, the, that's the difference between the uh, feeling of hoarding. I mean, that's that's where people get the disconnect with money. Like when that like towards my last few years working at my last job. You know, it was a customer service job, so young people cycle in and out quickly. And um, one of the first things I tell them is, uh, you take a look around. Look at all the chairs. We literally don't need to make any more chairs. We can stop doing that and just repair the chairs that already exist. There's chairs on the market, chairs in the factories, chairs right on the store shelf right now, disassembled, uh, assembled, 
at the junkyard, you can fix those, you can stop doing that. But then another one is, why does one person need a billion dollars? If one dollar can get you one sandwich, does one person need a billion sandwiches in their entire lifetime at all? And um, and let me uh, bump this one in, um, 773 is on the line, I think that may be, uh, let's see, your, your microphone is hot, 773. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm calling in from uh, uh, um, the world's most gentrifying neighborhood, Logan Square, okay. and I just yeah. want to say how timely um, this conversation is, uh, because you know, the, the, the mainstream corporate media, including, you know, national public radio, they are, they are pretending to, um, you know, pretend, you know, based upon the, of course, stock market and, and those sorts of unnatural indicators of, of the, the, the health of our country that, you know, everything is, is fine, including even though we've got massive unemployment, um, you know, at the door. But I think it's, it's not just about, you know, starting to talk about why we, how we have to prepare for this, but how the choice is that we need to hasten the decline. Um, and, and I say go ahead and just get it over, with, you know, start it now, as opposed to, um, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I know how bad it's going to get, but I'm going to vote for Jim Crow Joe just because that'll give us a couple more years of, um, of stability or, you know, just this whole idea of propping up the empire. So many, I know so many, um, you know, black folks, we want to rush in and, 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 and keep the, uh, the, the plantation from burning down instead of fanning the flames. And so I think the thing is, is right now we have to resist and not buy into the system and not pretend that everything is going to be okay because it's not if that makes sense yes and this is indeed um eric hudson of uh, fury yes this is okay so yeah so i mean if, if you find time to uh to call in regularly on these uh three o'clock so that that's legitimately that that's talk fury. That is, <laughs> we get like three more furies, and this is a fucking furious goddamn show. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, I, you know, I just think I think it's really important because again, so many of us, you know, we. I mean, I know a lot of folks who are in media, and they know how bad it's going to get. But you know, they say, well, for our children, you know, if we can extend this this rot if we can keep it going it's just like the leaky dam or if we can just keep it going for just a couple more years then my kids will be grown but meanwhile what we're doing is by not you know what we're doing is we're just kicking the ball down the road for another so we and and, and you know who's not benefiting from the delays who's not benefiting are the, the the black and brown children who are being you know we had 126 shootings in Chicago over the the the, the, the racist holiday and this and and you know us continuing on this system just allows for generations to come to be extinguished in terms of uh, genocide what we're seeing now and so my my thing is let's let's crash the, the the empire now and then generations in the future can be saved by 
like, you know, us fighting now to right this ship. So I think right now, you know, we do need to be talking about it's urgent, um, you know, whether it's getting out of these cities to grow our own food um, mm-hmm. and to build our own collective culture. But we also need to um, pull the, 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 the veil, um, pull the wool out of people's eyes so they see that they, their role is not to protect the Bernie mansion, but to fan the flames. Because the sooner we crash this system, the, the sooner that we can get to better to building new collective, um, we can get to, you know, to build a new collective civilization. And, and I know how that sounds, but what you're talking about is when we're talking about how do we provide food for our neighbors, that's how we build a new system. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. And I do think a lot of people are honestly just too scared. Uh, I think a lot of people get caught in the mentality that, like, this is really bad, but it's the devil I know um, sort of of mindset. And so they don't really, they they don't want to conceive of creating a new society that's much more equitable or uh, a society that is, um, you know, based on anti-racism or acceptance that, uh, and the idea that everybody deserves to have their basic needs met, you know? And... It's honestly weird to me because it seems like across the political spectrum, right, whether you're obviously if you're talking to a leftist, but even if you're talking to like a Democrat or Republican, uh, you say, do you think the government spend is too wasteful with their spending? They're going to say, yeah. Like, do you think that homeless people should freeze to death in the winter? Most people are going to say no. And it's like and yet we continue to tolerate a system where there's the government spending money on bullshit and uh, houseless people are dying every winter. Like. It, I, like, I, I just don't understand how there's that disconnect that we all know these things collectively and for the most part believe them, uh, regardless of where you're on the political spectrum, but nobody really wants to push for a society where these things cease to exist. It's honestly just wild to me. Well, I think a lot of that is we get our cues of what's acceptable for, we get our, our, our cues of what's acceptable from corporate media. So right now, and it's important, you know, there is a, you know, there is a, where police brutality is no longer, well, they're saying it's no longer acceptable, uh, acceptable. I think it's going to continue on, you know, in, I don't think it's going to stop just because, you know, pain and suffering are an industry, the black misery economy, you know, our pain, our suffering generates all sorts of profit. But right now, people are talking about police brutality, and and I think a lot of that has to do with they're going to privatize the police force anyway. So if they can break the unions, then they can bring in you know Halliburton and and Blackwater, all of these these private contractors to run the the, the private police, which we're seeing in universities like the University of Chicago. But my point is. That's why is it that there's so many white liberals and the black bourgeoisie talking about police brutality, which they should be, but they're not talking about the, the, the murders and the killings of black people on the south, in, you know, the south side, the west side, throughout America. And yeah. what we have is we have communities that where people are totally disassociated. Yeah. You know, our communities are, people are, are literally insane. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's black, that's oppression. That's, you know, Fran Fanon's talked about this. And this is the violence. And these are people that have nothing in, you know, it's, it's sort of a suicidal impulse. 
um, the French talked about this. And so we're not talking about we're not talking about the violence in our community just because that's that's white supremacy as well. But again, there's so much money to be made off of it that it's just we just focus on police brutality. And yet we have these black kids who are being slaughtered in our communities and they're being slaughtered by the exact same white supremacist system that's causing the police brutality. And so I think we this is how we have to frame it. How many more black children have to be killed by white supremacy? And what it's going to take, unfortunately, is for white children be start to being killed, to, for people to, you know, and more black, you know, upper class children to be start to being killed. And this is what's going to happen. And so my thing is we need to, and I hope this makes sense, but, but I, you know, we need to start addressing black children who are being killed in, 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 in the black communities and understand this is just as much white supremacy as racist police. Oh, I definitely agree that it's white supremacy, but I don't know that there's going to be a solution because a lot of people seem to be awfully comfortable with school shootings and that's predominantly white kids dying. So yeah. at this point, I don't even think white kids dying is going to be enough to end white supremacy. Yeah, when you look, look at their response right. to... Um... This is why we have to collapse it. You know, we just have to collapse it. We just have to collapse the system. It's already doing it, but we need to fan the flames. Yeah, on the, like, uh, and, and building on what, what Phoenix Kalita said there, the... um. The, the one with me, and this was like, uh, this was no shit, my second podcast episode. Mm. I was literally live while the Sandy Hook shit was going on. Mm. And like, immediately, I was like, you know what, while we're live, because the program, I, I could only do 30 minutes maximum. So I was yeah. like, let's crack in as much shit in here as we can. And I, and I, um, and this is old school wine cellar, folks. I was doing this shit with two telephones and a 2003 nice. Dell computer. And I took one of the nice. telephones and I put that shit up to my television set and flipped it to Fox News just in time to catch Mike Huckabee saying that the shooting happened because they took God out of schools. It's like, these people nice. are fucking out there. They're gone. Yeah. So, yeah, like, if, if my nihilism wasn't already well set in place regarding reforms, <laughs> uh, it definitely was in November 2012, I think, was Sandy Hook was. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think you are right, Phoenix. It doesn't matter what kids are being killed. Um, but this is why black people have to say enough about our children being killed. And this is the reason why one of the reasons why I don't have children, just because the idea of you know a child that I brought into this world just being killed. I mean, and I just don't, you know, you can't even, you, you, you saw the two killings in the black neighborhood, the last two of these young 15, 14 and 15 year olds in Roseland. The mothers didn't even let them leave the house and they let them go to the store. They see an older young black kid who was 19 and they say, hey, you know, man, you're really tall. You know, in my neighborhood, we called it dapping. You always dap the older kids. That was like a rite of passage. And instead of saying appreciate it, he pulls out a gun and shoots uh, shoots him down. This just happened two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you again how our communities have become amored. You know, and this is what happens when there's just no hope for that next generation. There's no jobs. There's no 
even if they do the right things, mm-hmm. more than likely there is nothing for them. And and so I'm not saying that I agree with them, but I'm saying I can't blame. You know, I can't. You understand where they're them. coming from. Yeah, and so so my my point is is that we need to start. These are the these. I think these are these were the folks that were also doing the real work of the riots, which was looting. I mean, and and this was the folks not afraid to throw a brick. Now, I hope I'm not, you know, getting us all in trouble here, but these are the children, the kids who are not afraid and who are, like Biggie Small said, ready to die. So I think that we just, again, we have to get revolutionary, and it means planning for new societies, but it also means doing all that we can, and this is what Malcolm X talked, to facilitate. The corporations are already crashing the system by looting us, our communities repeatedly, but now we have to do our role in telling people, don't join the military. You know, do not join the military. That The military was not made for young Hispanic women, just like it wasn't made for the young, you know, the the the, black, the young black man who killed that woman. And it's so, it's so unfortunate. But that kid was from the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, and so many, you know, poor kids, black and Hispanic, they joined the military looking for opportunities and they, they, they become disturbed. They, bec- they, they become mentally unfragiled. So I think, you know, we just have to get real. I'll, 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 listen, for, I'll listen now. Yeah, I think it's vital when you talk about, you know, we have to start building the structure, at least, even if we don't have control of all of our own resources yet. People, a socialist movement or any kind of liberation movement needs to start building the structure to be able to do it ourselves. Um, in tandem with collapsing the system. I think we can't do one without the other. Um, and, you know, like, the whole hippie commune or even, you know, communist commune has been tried before in little pockets, and they always fail because they try to kind of, like, do their own little thing in their own little bubble, And but they're not <laughs> attempting to change the outer world that will inevitably crash down on them. Um, because they're not fighting the state or they're not uh, building a larger revolutionary movement. But I also think, again, revolutionary movements that don't talk about let's have gardens. Let's talk about building alternatives for what we're talking about so we're prepared to support people. That has to be done. Um, and Eric, when you're talking about things like, you know, telling people not to, um, you know, going in the military, it does all these terrible things that we discussed several times today to oppress people who um, I think an important point there that um, we could use to maybe also segue into a question. Somebody else in my face who wanted to um, um, today on the show, see if she wanted to hop on, bring it up. Um, it, it's, it's kind of on the same topic. Um, if we talk to people about not joining the military, you know, the reason that the greatest recruitment for the military now isn't patriotism. It's just that so many more people are impoverished and the military gives college and opportunities that that's why they just a lot more people they all join because they're white homegrown patriots most people I don't think they do you know and there's even a quote from a high-ranking military commander who I think is the head of recruitment or something um he said I know, but he's the greatest recruiter. oh um, Dr. Springler oh fun Dr. Springler, your audio is breaking up a bit. Is there any adjustment you think you could make? 
Um, is this any better? Oh, that came through pretty clear. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think the best way to stop that then is to not yell at people to not join the military if they have True. very little options. It's for us to start creating alternative options because our economy and educational system is not built to support oppressed people to have a future anymore. And we have to get Absolutely. real about that. Like we're going to start building the community. We're going to start employing people and give them skills through our gardening system, you know, that we build. And people stay here and work for a year, learn the system, and then they can build their own farm and have some land because we socialize the land. Like, we have to start talking and building those things if we're going to tell somebody not to join the military because they have no other option to get out of their poverty. Um, and so to connect questions, so somebody commented on my Facebook in regards to the upcoming show about um, somebody that they work with um, a woman was, there was an attempted rape uh, by her neighbor who broke into her house. And she just wanted to call the police because of the history of the police. I don't know the race of this person, this woman, but um, she, for all the political not calling the police, safety reasons. Um, and so the person who commented, my friend, wanted to know, like, well, so what's the long-term solution to this since it's not really a solution right now? And, um... I'll just preface on that. We we're also talking about the police here and the kind of police movement, anti-police movement. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people will scream at her to not call the police. But I'm wondering what that person actually, like, how we can actually help that person. Because it makes sense if the person wants to not call the police. But I also think that a lot of movements, and here's kind of where I'm at with that, kind of in line with what Eric said is, if there's going to be so much more calling to not ever call the police or something like that, they need to walk their talk and they need to create some solutions. They need to create a resource for people that's going to be able to help people with these real problems. Otherwise, it sounds like leftist theory that a bunch of people spout. But when somebody is in a issue of what would of what the corrupt and fucked up, violent imperialistic police force that we have if that and that's supposed to be the resource that the taxpayers are paying for how can we as a movement how do we build the alternative that functions for people where they trust us and they actually say yeah that's actually helping me let's actually yeah we don't need this police force anymore um talking a lot and i'll stop a second but my what i wanted to bring up with that is with theory with part of our long-term um plans, a self-defense program that we started in 2017 was always intended to have other wings to it. The self-defense was the first, creating a self-defense movement of women who were trained and being able to handle themselves in physically violent situations was intended not just to train women to help themselves, but so that we would have a community of people where when women get attacked, for instance, um, or there's a domestic violence situation and they don't want to call the police for obvious or maybe not obvious reasons, maybe they're, you know, undocumented and they can't use the police or they know that the police have failed people, um, that they, or that they don't need, also they don't need to call a man in their life. So that's the other alternative, right? It's like don't use the police, but then call a man because it's always about calling men for it, in terms of violence against women. And it's like men are the ones perpetuating the violence, but then we're supposed to call men to be our protectors. Like, it doesn't make sense. It kind of is kind of like calling the police, too, when you know the police might be a violent in that situation. So 
what we wanted to do was be a resource to say, okay, if somebody is in trouble, they can call us on a hotline. We'll create an app or something with a ride share thing where people can sign up, you know, to volunteer their rides once a week to know if in an emergency somebody could call them in a domestic violence situation. Can you help me move out? Can I stay somewhere for a few days? We got, you know, we have a resource of open rooms that might be available at any one time. And then... Somebody could show up, somebody who's gone through the self-defense training program for at least six months or whatever can show up, be there at the door, and if some violent ass, you know, man committing domestic violence doesn't want to let the woman leave, then we can walk in and we don't have to call a man to do that to help save us from men, basically. Um, so that's my thing. So that that's my, so that's a long-term thing that Fury wants to put into place. It's a lot of work, but it's 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 the still work. It's the stuff where you say it's not just screaming at people not to call the police. It's to say, okay, so what are we going to do for that person instead? And that's how you build a movement of people who start to feel like there, there's something. We're building something instead of talking and marching again in another five years, doing the same thing. Um, I'll leave it at that for now. Huh. One one thing I've, I've always... Um sort of I, I think uh what the word would be like facetiously that I facetiously ask is um what uniform does the good cop wear right whenever someone's like well there's good cops well what uniform do they wear well if your so-called good cop has on the same uniform as the one that busted my head yesterday I'm just gonna run from him too you know so like um this uh idea with having folks that you can call to come hold it down for you um do you have uniforms in mind or do folks keep it casual or just a sash or a hat, you know, something that lets you know that this is one of the folks that will come help you if you are being harmed? Well, you know, I'm going to respond to that. And as someone who has called the police and has ensured and went to actual court to, you know, because it's not just about calling the police, but it's also about staying there to make sure that the cops do what they're supposed to do. And then it's also about going to court and then making sure that, this, that you know, I mean, and I think that this case that Chelsea was talking about, this was a woman who was, they broke into her house and assaulted her. And so, so I think the thing is, you can't, you know, if you live in a, in a community on the south side of Chicago to tell people don't call the police, you know, unless you're there to take care of it, and that means to figure out who, who that person is and make sure he doesn't harm someone else, which I think is important to begin laying down the foundation for. And to answer your question, I don't think that person could be wearing a uniform or a sash at all. But again, this is something that Fanon and Cabral called revolutionary justice when there was no way they could call the police. In, in, in terms of revolution, and they had to handle it by themselves. But I would say in that case, no, you, these people cannot have uniforms on, they can't have a sash, but they have to make sure that the problem is removed. And another thing on that note with, in terms of dealing with police, you know, my thing is, is, you know, that woman doesn't want to call the police for fair reasons. So, but another thing is if we're dealing with women who are in, who have received violence and like criminal level violence, I mean, I guess that's kind of a funny term because why, what is criminal level of violence, especially when the courts don't really help victims of violence. But anyway, yeah. um, 
what I would say is like if women say like, look, I, you know, I was raped and I want to file a police report, I'm not going to get theoretical and dissuade her from that. What I would do is say, okay, we know that the police are trash about dealing with this. They throw out evidence, they fuck with things, and they make it an uphill battle because it's not worth many people trying. But what we can do, since we don't have any other really resources, that person says, yeah, you know what, I want to take on the criminal justice system in this case. Some of us who have dealt, who have maybe been trained to deal with police or somebody who is, um, you know, that could also be a way of use of privilege in some extent. If a group of us said, okay, we're going to take this woman, this, you know, maybe she's, you know, if it's a black woman or a Latina woman or somebody who's typically much more oppressed by the police, I'll go with her to the police station and Hawkeye watch those fucking cops and make sure that they take the police report and they do it correctly. Or get somebody who has legal experience or is a lawyer to go there with the person, volunteer to do it for free, on call, and go there and help anyone who's a victim of those crimes to make sure those cops do their fucking job, if that's the course they want to take. Because yeah. I can't tell a woman that if she decides she's going to make that fight, I'll say, what can we do to make sure that you don't lose it? Because it is backed against you, and that's why people don't fight in that way. Until we get free. I do, I do not have a follow-up question to that. <laughs> no, I think that would be awesome, though, to organize, um, like, the same type of folks who um, are lawyers who uh, behave as, like, um, legal observers at, like, marches and stuff. It'd be cool to get a coalition yeah. of them yeah. together to uh, sit and go to uh, police stations with people reporting crimes. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, And it, it has to be a little different from the legal observers who don't say anything. You know... These people have to get in those, in the officials, and I don't, you know, necessarily mean, you know, violently, but you have to call them out when you know they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, and um, so, yeah, I mean, the legal observers, but they have to not, you know, but advocate because the legal observers just write stuff down and then they, I mean, I'm not saying it's not important, and then they give it to the lawyers who use it, you know, in court, but you have to, the the cops have to know that they can't pull any bullshit just because these people are poor and just because they assume that they are not going to because the cops will say well you know she's not going to show up in court if you do this so you know but ultimately i do think we have to be able to because that's how it was done in the 30s and the 40s when you could not count upon anything from police people and i know this is a slippery slope but you know I think people, when the system totally crashes, which will happen, you know, there are a lot, and I mean, Chelsea can talk about this when she was in Occupy in in Detroit, but there are a lot of deeply disturbed people out there, and they have been made that way by society. They're victims too, but they're also violent, and, you know, again, Fanon talked about that, and I think we have to confront these issues because we're going to have to confront them sooner than later. I mean, yeah, like the the thing is, it's like um, when I look at it, a, a um, a white man did not grab a black man's hands, squeeze them around a skateboard, and swing them at a black woman's face. He did that yeah. all on his own, you know. So yeah, you got. And to my understanding, Phoenix Cleta, have you been following that? Has has he been found? 
Uh, I heard he was found, and I heard he's been missing ever since. So somebody did something, you know, and and I'm sure yeah. that whoever whoever did it, they had green skin, and they were some Alex Jones lizard people. No one that actually exists did anything. He got lost in a well. Someone get Lassie. I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but just by that example that we don't know where that so-called brother is, somebody justice can be done. Yeah, you know, um, back in the old neighborhood on Hilltop Tacoma with um, CRIP Community Resurrection and Progress, you know, a good example on 19th Street on um, 19th and L Street where the Speedy Mart is. Uh, somebody snagged a homegirl's purse while she was going in it to. Uh, purchased uh you know some junk food at the speedy mart and we just went ahead and handled that real quick like yeah. so a, a couple of 21st street crips and a couple of us from over on 23rd and sheridan ave were there and we just went ahead and and, and took chased that nigga down the alley he wasn't that nice on his toes and handled that on our own we didn't have to bring the pigs in and i mean and what yeah. are the pigs gonna do show up late and take a statement and maybe kill somebody and then like um we cover rapist cops a lot on the wine cellar, and I don't have an exact yeah. number or percentage in my head, but a fairly regular thing that happens, and this is literally, I've covered rapist cop stories, not just in the States, in bloody England, you know, back in, in uh, on the land in Africa, and rapist victim calls the cops, cop typically rapes her too. It's incredibly regular. Mm-hmm. So like, and well, if yeah. any, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Well, and I think, again, that revolutionary justice, again, is is key. And, and I don't say that as bravado, you know, but again, I think, you know, it's something that I take serious. And that's the reason why I, why I train, you know, because there's so many people, they will look at a crime and they will walk away. And, um, you know, it's serious business, but I think that's why we all have to be trained in being able to to get involved and handle the business. And I think ultimately, you know, I think ultimately if it's somebody who's snatching a purse, um, it's better to be handled by the community because they're going to learn a lesson probably while that person's getting, you know, getting handled. As opposed to being put, you know, in 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 jail, and and you know, there's no lessons out of that, you know. But there is lessons when the community handles it, and and again, that's the problem with the destruction and the looting of our communities by the corporate establishment is that they're those people that had that control, and that just wasn't brothers handling. That was grandmothers who would come off their their stoop with a broom and it was respect and and you know but all of that has been removed and we need to put get that back together as soon as possible and we can do this we can we can do this mm-hmm. yeah and, and like well it, now there's a though the we can do this so like in the beginning like how, how how would you start it like if you have anything in your head like do you go directly to the neighborhood is it a a get on a soapbox issue or is it like go to the older guys the guys that have more influence and you know attempt to persuade them to your ideas like how how do you initiate this you know here's a very simple thing and and it's well it's simple but 
you know, people would call it crazy, but that's just because, you know, we don't need, you know, I guarantee you, if we could go, you and I could go to Inglewood right now and walk up to brothers and just say, hey, what's up? Just, you know, I mean, our people are generous, our people are beautiful, and they respond to friendship and love nine times out of ten. And so it's just, man, it's just basic stuff. It's being in the community and saying, what's up? And I know that sounds, you know, I know that sounds simplistic, but it's not when there's such hyper-segregation and we move away from those communities. But those communities are always welcome to have us back. And there's going to be that one that is going to be clinically disturbed but the majority of it is that the communities that they portray on TV and in the news are not what Inglewood looks like. It's not what Roseland looks like. There are still a lots of amazing people there. Most people are amazing. So, man, it's just moving back there. And then just having the, 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 the you know, having to be able to things, to be able to be in dialogue, going to a basketball court. When I, would, when I was organizing, the first thing I did was went and played basketball on a, on a basketball court. I've got a couple skills. I got some moves. You don't even need moves, but just being earnest, you know, just starting dialogues. I mean, does that make sense? I mean, I, it's crazy because it shouldn't have to make sense, but it's just, what's up? You know, it's just... When I moved into Logan Square, it was mostly Hispanics. And it was IGs and it was Cobras. And it's just like, what's up, man? Just not, you know, these kids, they, nobody respects them. So when an adult gives them respect, they give it back. It's simple stuff. We don't get that with white people. They, white fucking gentrifiers don't give a, sorry, a, nothing about that. They don't give up their seats for elders. But young black kids, young Hispanic kids do. And that's why I think these are going to be the revolutionary agents, not the liberals, you know, but it'll be these kids. So I don't think it's that big of a deal, brother. Uh, this actually, oh, I was going to say, this Go reminds ahead. me a lot of the interrupters. Yeah. What'd you say? Oh, I said this reminds me a lot of the interrupters, which um, I don't know if you know or familiar with them when they were doing stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I, I know there was a, a TV show about them. I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about them. Yeah, yeah, they did get defunded. Good job, Chicago. Uh, but yeah, that was actually a thing is that it was all, um, well, predominantly former gang members. Uh, you had to have done prison time in order to be part of the group. And that was literally what yeah. they would do is just go up and like, hey, I heard you have a problem. You want to talk about it? And yeah. And, and then that's an advanced level. You know, and I, and I, yeah, so I do remember the, the interrupters, my bad. Um, but it just, just even on the lower thing, again, going to a basketball court and playing. You know, just saying, what's, you know what I mean? Just basic, basic stuff. And, and then the interrupters, that's on a, a higher level. I mean, it's an important level, and it was defunded, and that was a tragedy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just basic stuff. All this stuff that we, and again, there is a, you know, when you keep the, when you have interrupters, then you got to get rid of the interrupters because they are providing stability to a community. You can't gentrify a stabilized community. Right. You can't have interrupters in a t if you go gentrify. And I think we got to understand this 
stuff is about profit. Our killing black, black, you know, black death is profit. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's why you can't have interrupters. You can't have programs like this. Yeah. And I think what you spoke, what you said, Eric, speaks to um, rebuilding social um, institutions. I mean, that, that sounds really academic. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that there's a That's lot true. of... That's true. What you're saying is right. Of, what's that? What you're saying is right. They're absolutely right. Yeah. Institutional social bonds. Yeah, there's yeah. been a big amount of social bonds in the United States. And with poverty, the, you know, the leaving of industrial jobs, exiting the informal economy, which creates a new community to some extent, but we also see all the violence that's also in the, the informal economy because it's so dangerous and difficult in the United States. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, when it comes, to, I think that's a lesson that socialists have to learn because mm-hmm. they... And, you know, a lot of this is white um, privilege, but and how it predominantly, uh, you know, how it overtakes the, the left in the United States. But they sit at universities and the north side and coffee shops and shit like that. And they're, you know, writers that, you know, at, at these, uh, you know, posh little leftist, you know, journals. And they, it, they're not involved in the oppressed people's lives. Most of the people speaking for the left are academics and they're not even working-class people want to speak for working-class people. And this is the this is why the left will keep defeating itself when we see how they defeat themselves with certain campaigns, elections, and all this stuff. But, you know, getting involved on a community level to build this stuff, that's stuff that will really start to build a movement. You don't, you know, I know we brought this up, you know, Phoenix, we talked about kind of the religious concept and how people approach things. But if, it, if a religion is all about the Pope preaching, TV, they literally don't think they would recruit anyone. It's because they're there open 24-7 for people who feel in pain, you know, and if they take mm. advantage of it. I don't agree with it in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. For the part, but most, but, you know, I, I, it's because they're like, they're, they, there's liquor stores and there's churches on every corner in various communities. And mm-hmm. but where are the leftists? Where's the storefront for the leftists? That's what we have to build. Yeah. And, and you know what? And I should have said, you know, it's not like anything I'm saying is new. And this this is what we lost when we lost Brother Bruce Dixon, um, we, a former Black Panther. You know, when the, when the Black Panthers were providing food, the kids weren't necessarily hungry. But what it was was you had parents who had to work. And so the parents, you know, if they could drop their kids off to some place to eat, it made their lives more manageable. So instead of trying to figure out how do you cook a you know a mess you know you know a meal for a bunch of kids when you got to run off to work and you're running late, so it was a social structure as well as food. A lot of the kids were hungry, but not all of them. And but what the parents were able to do, but all of them were poor. And so what the parents were able to do again was drop their kids off someplace before school because then the kids would all walk together from the the, the, the sort of food centers that started by the Black Panthers to school together. So it was just a way for them to have bonding before school with positive, strong black leaders. Then they all marched to school in a group. And so the parents could relax 
a little bit more in the morning when it's, I mean, I got to get up and I got to deal with all these kids and get and feed them and get and then, but it was just like, no, I just got to get them dressed and put them there and then I can go to my exploitive job and then feel a little bit stronger. So these are the structures. Just and this is the problem, but but again, the nonprofits don't give stuff to nothing like this because those kids were being radicalized. They'll give it to the poverty tent minister, but you know they'll give it to the the boutique activists. But they're not going to give it in their groups that are doing this in Chicago. Um, but these are the points we have to be providing programs like this, and then providing ed- education. We gotta, in other words, we have to do exactly what the Black Panthers did. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Um, and I would love to see more of that. I think community gardens are an excellent way to start to develop that, Um, not just to teach people, you know, how to grow things, which I think is an important uh, self-sufficiency skill to have, but also because it does create community, and you get to also educate people about health and nutrition, and let's be honest, there's a lot of fucking food deserts, um, and people don't always Mm -hmm. have the access to healthy options. I fucking love community gardens for that. As opposed to just using them to gentrify, and that's yeah. where the white folks get all the funding for it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I would love to see more of that. It's I just. Oh, what was that? I was going to say it's a way to show people in a tangible way that they can have a different world. You know, like it's kind of like the difference between yelling at a protest, um, you know, we, you know, or, you know, the famous thing from. I one of their chants was, you know, we are unstoppable. Another world is possible. They would chant that about another world being possible. It's like, okay, so you're chanting that to people on the street who might feel pressed, but when you show them, like, look, we can grow food. You just, you just created something, you created life. Eat it, and you can feed your your block with it. Like that is that's a different understanding. Maybe some people you get recruited, or they become empowered, or politicized, or radicalized by hearing that chant, but I think a lot more people in communities, they feel it more when you're practical and you're there for them. Like Eric was saying, when you can help take care of the kids in in a structured way for people in the community. And, you know, and that's part of what the Black Panthers, you know, why they started tracking so many people and became, they became so loved in their community because parents could rely on going there and getting their kids food, Mm -hmm. you know? They were, they were so successful, the federal government finally started doing it because of them. Because they That's did. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, WIC was the Panthers. And that's how some people become socialists, when they see that and they feel that, instead of just, um, you know, theorizing to, to, um, to a lot of people. who gotta, You know, they got to get up, they got to go to work. Maybe that's not their, um, but, you know, maybe it's not, it's not everybody's entrance the same way into what, what a different world is going to start looking like, how it matters to different people. Yeah. And I bet you you feel a lot more successful as a black parent when you know that you are taking your child to a place where they are loved, they are respected, they are taught. And that was the Black Panthers. You feel successful. Like, man, I got my child into this. As opposed to just taking them to a shitty school where you know... You know, I mean, where you know that the school is shitty, you know, and and so, so yeah, you know, I mean, this stuff is just so basic, and the and and because it's so basic, we got to ask ourselves why it's not there, and the reason again, it is because in our exploitation, in our wretched 
community, in our wretchedness, there is a lot of money to be made. Black, you know, black people being ground into the ground, families, generations. That's the new American economy, and we got to get real. You know, start calling these these liberals out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, now, um, as we go over here, we're looking at uh four fifteen p.m. Uh, WineCellarMedia.com. Uh, something that uh stuck out in my head, Doctor Springer. I hope I'm not cutting too deep into your afternoon here. <laughs> the um, let me know if I'm if I'm because I know you got you you are a grown ass adult with shit to do. But the um, you mentioned a spider web network. Could you just jump us off into that idea? Like when you hear it, you can instantly kind of tell what direction it's going in. But feel free to articulate it uh, the best way you know how. You know, to the average person tuned in. Yeah, let me. I can try to give a simple breakdown of this um, this project idea. Um, and then maybe we can jump off on these kinds of topics next week because it might just kind of open a can of worms here. But um, so the Spiderweb Network is an idea of mine um, that a number of us have been um, kind of discussing now with your organization. Um, it's a combination of projects that would include um, basically building our own economy. Um, and it's I always like to preface the book history, so I'll, I'll say a bit about where it comes from for the nerds out there. Um, so back in China, um, in the Chinese Revolution, um, the Communist Revolution, they, uh, this is like early 1900s, um, I'm terrible with dates, and this was a long, long revolution. They actually called it the Protracted People's War, which means over a long, long period of time. Um, so... The way that their revolution went was very different, um, and this is in Maoist um, theory. Um, and they, they didn't go about their revolution um, in the way that the Marxist-Leninists in Russia went about it, um, in terms of taking over the factories and and, the, and things like that, and kind of having a more semi-industrial revolution. They realized that their proletariat or their working-class people were very founded in um, the peasantry that were in the outskirts of the cities in China who were working on all the farms and in poverty. So what they did to build their revolution was they they started um, the Communist Party, which many of them started in the cities. They went out and they joined and they lived and they worked with the peasants for years and years and years. And by working with them um, on the farms and in and also, you know, in this rural poverty, they started building the Communist Party in these different pockets of rural areas all across China. And China's huge. So they they built their revolution from outside the cities in the with the peasants. And then over so many years that finally they the peasants wanted to be independent and have their farms and their independence with their take their land back. Um, and so they finally went into the cities, which were mostly, you know, the, the, the Chinese um, upper class were in cahoots with um, first England, when England um, kind of took over and with the Opium Wars and with America, um, semi-colonized China, you could say. Um, the peasants finally went in after like 20 years and went in and took over the cities and that's how they won the revolution. So. Anyway, long story short, protracted people's war is building your own economy from the ground up with oppressed people and building that foundation oh, in order to 
prepare for a revolution. You don't just try to go in with arms and take over the government and have a revolution. You build the revolution by building your own economy. So um, the spider web has to do with that. It's, you know, we've been in communication with a number of um, organic farmers across the United States um, who do great projects, who are actually like political, um, you know, or pan-Africanist um, farmers, you know, um, and kind of floated the idea. And so it's something that will be in the works for the long term in order to um, build trade. So one farm could, you know, I'll give an example. Farming is just one wing of it because it's very food security is going to be very, very important. Um, you could have one farm that, um, you know, might have plenty of supplies, plenty of grain or whatever um, for their season, but they have no workers or volunteers to work on the farm to grow the food for the neighborhood um, or for whatever reason. Um, and then maybe another farm, you know, has lots of workers, but they have no money. They have no seed funds to start their farm, but they have a lot of unemployed people who want to do the work. So those two farms could be in communication and then trade and say, okay, well, look, we just, we got plenty of seeds and supplies and, and machines to do the processing. Um, we'll trade you that and we, they, they wouldn't have to use cash money. You could say that it's going to be a new economic, um, currency, um, so they could say, okay, well, we'll give you the, you know, maybe a bartering system. I mean, that's, those are details are important, but at this point, but they could say, okay, so they trade their supplies and materials, and then maybe the the other group that has a lot of um, extra, you know, unemployed people who want to learn farming as a skill could say, okay, for the season, you go to the other farm. And maybe it's in another state or something. And for that season, you'll work and live on the farm and you'll get food. And when you come out of it at the end of that season, it's guaranteed that you are going to have a certain level of skills in organic farming. And once those people go through that training process, the spiderweb network can help because this could be a lot of farms and a whole bunch of different organizations working in this. We could facilitate those workers who then start their own farm based on some land that we either bought or socialized in some way for the people who have built the skits to go there because we know there's so many unemployed people who be like this economy is just you know they think of them as surplus workers and that's why there's so many black and brown people working through the prison system because capitalists decided that they didn't need to pay them and they don't need them as workers and that's going to be more and more so in the technological age so um we're talking about getting off of that system and giving people sovereignty and skills and an economy themselves so that's the one example, just to kind of wrap the head around that. Um, but we could do, you know, it's a media project, you know, grassroots media traveling around and going to these different projects and telling the real news about what's happening. Um, it can be a lot of things. It can be a self-defense program that pops up for every every local area that decides they want to do a community garden to be self-sufficient for their neighborhood or urban block or whatever it is. You know, they say that it will also mean that we'll, you know, from theory, since that's kind of our little thing, our organization could say we'll provide self-defense trainers to every single location so any oppressed people can get training through this process. And we start to build our own communities um, in a self-sufficient and impactful way. Um, the Spiderweb Network would be organizations that, or any operation that decides to be part of it, that can um, maybe have a representative from each organization to vote, help decide finances, we can help each other out financially or, or help boost each other's fundraisers um, to publicize it, to help get funds, um, and then basically trade amongst each other and help each other out. So um, that's, that's the big idea with that. I'm not sure if I covered um, 
enough. But. Yes. Now, folks tuned in. Do you understand now? I think we're like four or five episodes in why I specifically went toward uh, Dr. Springler for <laughs> expanding the program. And um, this Eric, Eric Hudson on the line, if you if, if, if you have time to, to come in, jump on, right? H- Hudson and Springler on the program with, with Phoenix and myself. This shit is live to me. It's Talk Fury. I think it is incredibly constructive. Um, as long as there are no emergencies or anything going on, it should be 3 p.m. Central Standard Time uh, every gosh darn Sunday. I actually went ahead and made the Facebook event for it reoccurring so I can just um, really just change the details and pictures if need be. Like, I'm, I'm that ready for it. All right, and Phoenix Kalita has a swap cast coming your way. And I have some fun stuff that I'm not telling you about that I'm going to be doing on the regular weekdays because I have more room to work with and do that. All right, so thank you folks uh, coming on, talking the shit. If you want to support four motherfuckers talking shit or anything else we want to do moving forward uh we have a uh, patreon.com slash wine cellar media fund i've uh, been there since 2015 uh glad to see more folks jumping on you're gonna like you folks have already gotten with uh supporting the program you got phoenix Kaliter out of her job and in activism and doing the program and um you got me off overtime you know and fuck around and do this shit full-time Next thing you're gonna see me in the goddamn streets, cracking some domes. I, hey, I didn't say that. <laughs> All right, so uh, uh, Eric Hudson, Doctor Springler, thank you very much, and please be as safe as possible wherever you are. Bye, y'all. Thank you, brothers, Bye. sisters. All right, now peace. Bye.